This morning we're going to begin a five-week series entitled The Storms of Life. And um, I don't know if you are ready for the storms, but here's what I know. They come ripping into our lives even this week. Here's what I've heard. I've heard about a young man who's a part-time custodian at Door Creek that was uh, mistaken in a high-speed chase and uh, held at gunpoint, uh, not knowing where it was all going to end. A, a nightmare kind of story that I'm sure his friends are chuckling about. But nonetheless, um, a storm. I've heard of people this last week that got some test results. It doesn't look good. And it's hard. There's biopsies scheduled for this week, and they don't know where it's all going to lead. I think of a high school, uh, college-age freshman who was home for Christmas and this past week sat across the table from his dad in shocking disbelief as he heard his dad tell him that, that his parents were getting a divorce. A young girl who um, left town for cancer treatment, going to be a long way away for a couple of months, not knowing how it's all going to play out. And that's just a little bit of what I heard. And what I heard is just a little bit of what I know is going on here. It's, it's the tip of the iceberg. What I know in a group this size, there are a lot of us right now, right here, that are really going through it. We're right in the midst of that storm. Or we don't even know it, but this week, something big's going to roll in. And um, there's a lot of questions in these storms. Where's God in these storms? What is he doing? What's happening here? Why is it happening? And how do you make sense of life when everything's upside down and inside out? And how do we as followers of Christ, how do we honor him? How do we walk in faith when our feelings are telling us God's not good? So today, as we begin our series, we're going to look at the book of Job and our message title is God of the Storm. It has to do with who God is, his role in the storm as this supreme ruler who actually is in control of it. That, that storm that we would say right now, completely out of control. The book of Job tells us he's, he's actually in control of it, that he's a good God, full of compassion and mercy. And it gives us a picture in Job of what it looks like to respond in faith when a world's fallen apart. And the beauty of this book is it tells us as much about God as it does human suffering. And unlike the storms we go through, the book of Job gives us an inside look, doesn't it? You know, we've got chapters 1 and 2. Job didn't have that. He didn't know about the bet in heaven between God and Satan over his life. Knew nothing about it. And he certainly didn't know about chapter 42, where it was all going to end. We have that opportunity. We have that benefit as we go through the story of Job. But we're, all, we're just like Job, aren't we? When we're in the storm, a lot of times we can't see clearly. We don't know where it's going to go. We don't know what it all means. And the book of Job is just like that. And it gives us a very, very important perspective Truth from God's word that some of us this morning really need to embrace because there's a lie going out 
It goes out from Satan himself that goes like this. The reason we're going through suffering is because we have messed up big time. We're suffering because we've sinned and it's payback time. And uh, the book of Job, the story of Job, comes and says that that's not quite right. You may be suffering for sin, but not all suffering is because of sin. Job suffers as a righteous, innocent man. And for some of us, that needs to be a truth that liberates us from a guilt that ought not be ours. Well, as we begin, let's turn over to Job chapter 1. You'll find it on page 359 in the Bibles in the rack in front of you. And as we go through this chapter, we're going to be met with this man Job and find out about his character. Let's see what we find out about this man's character in verses 1 through 5. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the east. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. Three times in chapters 1 and 2, We read that he's upright, he's blameless, he's a man who fears God. That's that reverent, affectionate, humble obedience towards God. And he's a man who shuns, he turns away from evil, from wrongdoing. We read it in the opening verses again in chapter 8, chapter 2, verse 3. Making it clear that Job is more than just a good man who's had a bad day. He's a godly man. He's upright. He's blameless. He's a God-fearer. He shuns evil. We also get a clear picture that God has prospered him. He is a wealthy man. Wealth in his ten children. Wealth in the thousands of sheep and camels, the hundreds of oxen, the donkeys that he has, all evidence of of his great wealth. And the beautiful thing about Job is his wealth does not lead him to a place of self-sufficiency where he says, God, I don't need you. I'm doing all right. Probably somebody needs you down the road a little bit more than I do. So take care of them. I'm fine. No, he was very aware of his need for God and especially his need for God on behalf of his children. So all the time, as was his custom, he prayed and interceded and offered sacrifices for his children like a priest in his own home. He was a good man. But he was more than a good man and more than a wealthy man. He was a godly man. Don't miss that point. It's so clear in the text. This man goes through the worst day anybody could ever go through as a godly man. Now we read about God in verses 6 through 12. And here's what we read. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. 
And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has. And he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself do not lay a finger. And Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Well, the text moves from Job to God. The camera lifts from earth up into heaven. And what we notice there in the throne room is everyone from the angels in verse 6 to Satan himself has to do God's bidding. They're completely under his control. Even Satan has to ask permission to test his theory. What was his theory? His theory was this. God, the only reason Job is worshiping you is because you've given all kinds of stuff and you put a big old high fence around him and protected him. You take the fence away, you take everything you've given away, and guess what? He'll curse you to your face. Now here's what Satan had right. He was right that all of Job's prosperity came from God. Here's where he was wrong. He was wrong in thinking that Job or any one of God's followers would no longer worship him when they didn't have the things of life. He was convinced of that. And that's the great test in the storms of life. When we lose things, whether it's control of things, whether it's a marriage, a family, a job, our life, a loved one, When we lose something that's dear to us, the great test is, will we still worship God? Satan was convinced he wouldn't. He wouldn't do it. Now what we notice here, that God not only allows Satan to strike him in everything he has, But he says in chapter 2 at the end of verse 3 something that is shocking to us. This is what God is saying to Satan about his involvement in this horrific calamity. He says to Satan, you incited me against Job, against him, to ruin him, literally to destroy him without any reason. And here's what's hard about our teaching this morning. What's hard is the proximity between a God who's in control and all-powerful to Job's storm, to all the calamity and suffering and heartache that he's going to go through. It's so close together. God, Job's suffering. Joseph talks about this very thing. If you're not familiar with the story of Joseph, it's in the beginning of the Bible. He's one of the sons of the patriarchs. He's Jacob's son. He's Jacob's favorite son. That meant he was the hated brother. They despised him. They were jealous of his father's love for Joseph. And so one day, they decided to kill him. They threw him in a pit, trying to figure out what to do with him. And then 
they decide we probably shouldn't kill him. Let's sell him as a slave to this band of Ishmaelites that are heading down to Egypt. So like a piece of meat, they sold their own flesh and blood as a slave to complete strangers for a few pieces of silver. And later on in the story, they meet up with their brother, who now is number two in command in Egypt. And here's what Joseph says to his brothers, now looking back over it all. You, brothers, meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. Early on, when they first meet Joseph, he said this in chapter 45. And now, do not be distressed, brothers. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now, now, wait a minute. Joseph, come on over here. We want to ask you a couple questions. Who threw you in the pit? My brothers did. And when you were begging for your life to be spared and you were looking up, whose faces were looking down at you, laughing at you, spitting at you? My brothers. Uh, Who pulled you out of the pit and handed you over the Ishmaelites and sold you 30 pieces of silver? My brothers. Who sent you to Egypt? God did. God did. Behind the scheming, scoundrel brothers, Joseph clearly saw a God who's in control. You're in it right now. I mean, you're in it. It's huge. It's tearing your life apart. You see God like Joseph did, completely in control working out his good purposes for you, even when your feelings are saying, this isn't good. This isn't even close to good. Believing God to be good in control, working out his purposes that are full of mercy and compassion. This is key. The fight of faith will be what we do with our feelings that put God in trial and bring God to these points of conclusion in our minds where we say, this is what it feels like, God, that you've abandoned me, that my storm is off the storm tracker, it's off your radar. You don't even know what's going on because if you did, you wouldn't let this happen to me. That's how we feel. So important that we go back to who God is. Joseph did that. Job did that. Well, before we get into Job's storm in chapter 13, I want to tell you about the night we were camping at Peninsula State Park up in Door County. And I woke up in the middle of the night to some distant thunder. We had a great sight right on the water, Nicolay Bay, right by the boat launch there. And I hear the distant thunder. I'm going, uh-oh, what's this mean? Then all of a sudden I realized Lori was awake. I said, what do you think? How, how far away is it? Do you think it's going to be one of those big ones? I mean, one of those things that just wipe us out so we just pack it all in and head home? How far away do you think it is? Well, we didn't know, but we knew it was off to the distance and we had enough time to get ready and get ready we did. But we started running around the campsite, making sure everything was really buttoned down, got the things that shouldn't be out 
into the car or into a tent and we woke up all the kids. Hey, kids, get your bags off the edges because it's going to rain and you don't want to get all wet. We had time to prepare for the storm and it came in. Buckets load, it came in. But you know what? My experience is for most of us, that's not how the storms roll in. It's not like that. For most of us, we go, uh-oh, 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 uh-oh. Did you hear that? It's off in the distance. It's coming. It sounds bad. Something bad is about to happen to me, to us. It's usually not like that. It's more usually like, bam! Where did that come from? Two phone calls that changed my life a little over four years ago. The first was on December 11th, 2002. Studying at home in my study. Got a call, picked up the phone. My fears, Mark speaking. Yeah, Mark, this is uh, Dr. Hawkins. It's Lori there. I said, uh, Dr. Hawkins, she just stepped out. I'm sure you got the results of her mammogram, and if you'd like to share that, I'd pass that on. No, that's okay. Just have her call me. Well, in that instant, I knew that Lori had cancer. And I was there in my study in the basement, and I couldn't move. I could hardly breathe. The fear that blanketed my, my soul, my mind, was like a suffocating paralysis. My mind is racing. Five kids, our youngest Luke is just like five years old. And I'm playing it all out. Totally overcome by fear. Four o'clock, May 9th, that next May. I'm standing in the uh, entryway of the, the foyer at our church waiting for a lunch appointment when my cell phone rings. It's Lori. She says in a trembling voice, Have you heard? Well, I hadn't heard, but I knew what I was about to hear wasn't good. She said, I just got home and there was a message on the answering machine from your dad and he called and left a message that your mom died this morning. I said, my mom? She's not even sick. My dad's been the one who just went through quintuple bypass, had surgery the same day Lori had her mastectomy and almost bled to death two weeks later. We're not even worried about it, even thinking about my mom. And now I got news that my mom's dropped dead in the middle of the night. It was like lightning striking out of a clear blue sky. Completely unprepared. And that's how it was for Job. There's no way he could have anticipated the four servants that would come with this bad news. Each one sufficient in itself to put him under and each one bringing more and more and worse and worse news. So we read in verse 13. The day of days in Job's life. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, A messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. 
While he's still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who's escaped to tell you. Job says of God, Job 30, you've turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind. You make me ride on it. And you toss me about in the roar of the storm. That's exactly what he felt like. Persecuted by God and like a cork on a raging sea just tossed around. Job's storm reminds us that righteous, innocent Job suffers and if it happened to Job, it could happen to you and to me. And we live in a day when a lot of people say, no, 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 no. That's not God's will and that's not God's way. He doesn't do that. Don't expect that. Well, I'll let you come to your judgment as you hear God's word on the subject. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Not you might, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Paul says in Acts 14, we must go through, not we may go through, many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, heaven. James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, not if, but whenever you face trials of many kind. The interesting thing about the book of Job is chapters 40 through 31 records the dialogues of Job's three misguided friends, all of whom don't believe that the righteous could suffer innocently. It's just not in their construct. Job, the reason you are getting nailed is because you've sinned. Confess your sin, get right with God, and hopefully this thing will blow over. And God says to those three, you were wrong in what you said. You not only misrepresented Job, but you misrepresented me. You need to repent for your sin, and you better have Job pray for you because you're in a heap of trouble. Hey, it's a possibility that we could suffer because of sin. But it's also a possibility from the pages of God's word and the story of Job that we could suffer as people who love God and are desirous to do his will. And that needs to be in our theology. Well, what does it look like? What does it look like then to worship God? It's a beautiful picture. Look at it in verse 20. He's just heard the news that this Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. What did he do? 
What does it look like to worship God when our world is falling apart? Well, here's what it looks like first. He brings God his pain. He acknowledges that God exists in that very fact. He doesn't move away from God with his pain. He brings his pain to God. That's what we need to do in the storm. We need to bring it to God, acknowledging that he is, that he's alive, that he cares. And then we notice what he does is he acknowledges that God is king, that he's in control. He submits to God's rule in his life. How does he do that? He does it by saying, look, I came into this world with nothing. I'm going to leave with nothing. All I have is from God. He's given it, and he has the right to take it away. He submitted to God's plan in his life, even when it was the worst thing that could have ever happened to him. He's lost everything, save his wife. He has lost it all. And his wife isn't being very helpful at this point in his life when she's saying, Job, just curse God and die. Curse God and die. He doesn't. He submits. And that sets him up to worship, to praise. He praises God. How does he do it? He focuses on his unchanging character in the midst of his completely changing world. May the name of the Lord be praised. He acknowledges that God is king and worthy of all praise, even though he's lost it all. And in all this, he doesn't sin. So if you find yourself in the storm, verses 20 through 22 then help us say, what are we supposed to do? Well, if we find ourselves in the storm, then we need to bring him our pain. We need to bring him our broken hearts, our bloodshot eyes, the groanings of our heart. That, that, that's, a, that's all we can bring are the grunts and groans because we can't even form words for the way it hurts inside. And I remember people saying, here's the crazy thing. Mark, when I go to church, it's harder. My, my emotions are right there on the surface. And, and I remember that first Sunday after Lori had had her lumpectomy and they found out they didn't get clear margins and we found out it had spread to the lymph nodes that I snuck in to a place in the auditorium where I'd never sat before, kind of way back under the balcony, hoping no one would see me. And we were singing the first hymn and I opened up my hymn book to sing and I couldn't sing. All I could do was cry. And then I remembered the people saying, so hard to go to church so hard to be emotional. It's embarrassing. And man, I, I don't want to go to church again until I can get it back together. Uh, I knew exactly what they were talking about now. All I could do was cry. But to that whole point of, man, I, I, I got to get it together before I come back. A thousand times wrong thinking. No, no. We come here by the grace of God to be put together, to be held together by the loving embrace of God's people as we let them know. We don't have to stand up and tell everybody, but somebody here needs to know what you're going through. And you know what? We need you as much as you need Christ's body because we need to be reminded again and again that our God is worthy of all praise even when life stinks. 
And we see you worshiping God, fighting the good fight of faith, even through a veil of tears, with a broken heart, experiencing great loss, not having a clue where it all ends. We need you. So stay with God's people and allow God's people to stay with you. Are you in the storm today? Then you not, not only need to bring God your pain, but you need to submit to his supreme sovereign rule in your life. It's he who gives and it's he who takes away. There's a verse in the New Testament that I call the cliff note verse of the whole book of Job. It's found found in James chapter 5, verse 11. And here's the summary of the book of Job. James writes, As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard about Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. His purposes, his plan. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And what James is telling us is, look, the book of Job is not just a book about human suffering. It's a book about persevering faith in the midst of suffering. And it's a book about the purposes of God, the things that he brings about that are full of his mercy and compassion. And so everything that happened to Job and everything that's happening to you right now is part of God's plan. So that when the book ends, the book of Job, we read this, not from one of his misguided friends, but from the author himself, these words. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble Satan had brought upon him. Is that what it said? Consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. And friends, this is a hard teaching. But it's a teaching that's not unique to the book of Job. So the psalmist in Psalm 119 writes this, I know, O Lord, that your laws are righteous, and in faithfulness you've afflicted me. And you say, well, I don't like the author's conclusion, and I don't like the psalmist's conclusion about God. That's not, if that's the kind of God you want, you can have him. I don't want anything to do with that kind of a God. Well, let me tell you what God says about God regarding these very things. And we get his quote from Isaiah, the prophet, verse 7 of chapter 45. Here's what God says. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now listen carefully. As king, he rules over all things. He's all-powerful. He's always good. He is just. He tempts no one. His character is pure. It's all together completely holy. He reigns over all things, and all things that come to us ultimately come from Him. Even the suffering, even the pain. This is the conclusion of the book of Job. And what we do with this teaching is critical because there's tension there. 
And there's mystery there. Some will say, our free choice trumps God's sovereign purposes. So what we choose to do just kind of limits God. That's how they work it out. Others would say, God's goodness trumps his power. His power is really not omnipotent. It's not an all-powerful God, but he's an all-good God. And they work it out in their mind, solving the tension that way. That's what Rabbi Harold Kushner says. Read the quote. For my part, if I must choose between an all-powerful God who is not kind and fair, who could have prevented the Holocaust or the birth of a deformed child and chose not to, or else a kind and fair God who's awesomely powerful but not omnipotent, not all-powerful, I choose to affirm God's goodness even at the expense of his power, his sovereignty. Now on the other side is Lisa Beamer who lost her husband, Todd, the let's roll guy from United Airlines Flight 93, 9-11-2001. Here's what she says. He knew my children would be left without a father and me without a husband. Yet in his sovereignty and in his perspective on the big picture, he knew it was better to allow the events to unfold as they did rather than redirect Todd's plans to avoid death. I can't see all the reasons he might have allowed this when I know he could have stopped it. I don't like how his plan looks from my perspective right now. But knowing that he loves me, and can see the world from start to finish, helps me say, it's okay. God's in control. He's good. And yet he brings horrific things into our life, like what happened to Job. And the the thing that I go back to in this unresolved tension and mystery is not my own experience of Lori's cancer, which I can definitely tell you, it was the hardest year of our life at that point in our life, and it was the best year in our life for our five children, for our marriage, for Lori, for us as a family. What what I can go back to, what I constantly have to go back to and train my mind back to, is the cross. It's the cross. God's complete control over all that happened working out his good purposes for us in the worst thing that's ever happened in human history. I go back to the cross, and here's what I'm reminded from God's word. In Acts chapter 2, Peter in his sermon on the day of Pentecost says, this man Jesus was handed over to you, how? By God's set purpose and foreknowledge. It was his plan. He knew about it long beforehand. And you, he says, Peter does, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You did it. You're responsible. But it was God's, it was God's plan to have his own son impaled on a Roman cross. Later in chapter 4, Peter and John are praying to the Father, and they say, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did whatever your power, your power is referencing God the Father. They did, Pontius Pilate and Herod and the Gentiles did, what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. 
Herod and Pontius Pilate did whatever God had predestined to take place. Yet they did it on their own free accord. They're responsible of Jesus' death. And Jesus' death on the cross, the worst thing that's ever been done in human history, becomes the, great, the greatest thing that's ever happened. That's who God is and what he does as he's in control of all things. And so Lori and I, early on, decided we're going to stick with what we know. Here's what we know about God. He's in control and he's good. And so we just said, Lori's cancer is God's good hand in our life. We didn't say it because we felt like it was. We didn't say it because we knew the good things that were going to come out of it. It was a completely a statement of faith. God, this is your good hand. And what we decided to do is we're going to look for your goodness every day. And so I, I had no emotional energy to journal, but I had enough energy to be able to write down a few things at the end of the day to track God's faithfulness, his goodness to us. And over Lori's chemo and her radiation, there was never a day where I got to the end of the day and say, I don't know anything good that's happened today, God. Every day, there were several things that we could record. Submit to his rule and worship him. The worship of Job is pretty messy. And your worship right now may be pretty messy. And that's okay. From the heart, praise him in the midst of your storm. Let's pray. God, we believe in faith, not according sometimes to our feelings. And maybe right now, especially not with our feelings, that you are good, that you're the supreme ruler in control of even that which is breaking out around us that is rocking our world. And we would pray that each one here today would see you clearly, that they would be encouraged, not discouraged, by this hard, mysterious truth in your word that you're in control of their storm. May they acknowledge that as they bring their broken hearts to you. And may we together be a community that continually defies the lie of the enemy by saying to you that no matter what we have or what we've lost, you are worthy of all praise. Amen.